you know, living a, a faithful Christian life and a follower as being a follower of Christ is, is a difficult thing to do in our world. And uh, it's especially difficult to live uh, a sexually pure life. And I'm not going to get really graphic, so don't, you know, get all worried or anything like that. Uh, but our culture has a different view of sex than the Bible teaches. Uh, in, in our culture, they, they, our culture, pop culture uh, in America, and I think this is generally true in other, there's other venues, other parts of the world, other countries and other cultures that hold a similar view. Some don't, but uh, our American culture certainly does. It believes that sex has little or no restrictions. It's uh, all about me. It's my desires, my satisfaction. Sex is about using others, not serving them. And God never uh, intended sex to be about self. Uh, but in our society, it's all about self. It's all about me. Uh, here's here's the, the biblical ethic. The biblical ethic tells us that sex is only for the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That sex uh, is, it, within that union is about giving ourselves to our spouse and serving them. And that's the, the context of sex. Now, many people say, well, that's an outdated ethic. You know, we live in a different world. We live in a different time. That's not who, where we are. But think about it. We're, we're moving through the book of, of Corinthians. We're talking about the city of Corinth. We're talking about uh, times where Rome, uh, you know, you have the city of Rome, you have the city of Corinth. These were not, <laughs> these were not Puritan cities. They, they had no ethic as far as sex. So to say that uh, this was, uh, that, that now our culture is more enlightened now, this the culture that we live in today is really similar to Corinth or similar to Rome. And uh, many of the, uh, the cultural mores are very similar. So this is not an outdated ethic. Uh, the people of uh, Corinth would have laughed. In fact, they mocked Christians about their sexual belief. In fact, we're going to look at a passage where Paul is basically trying to give them uh, a moral, pure uh, ethic to live up to because they live in a culture that has none. And so this was not something new. This is something very old. Uh, their sexual beliefs were not very different, again, from our pop culture. Now, Christianity originally broke the scene in the middle of the Roman Empire. And they looked at Christians and they looked at their ethic about sex and they thought they were absolutely crazy uh, because uh, it was normal for a person within the religious tradition of some religions to visit a temple prostitute. As part of worship. So this is, so when Christians came out and said, no, 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 sex is only for uh, a man and a woman in a marriage relationship and, and anything else is pornea, uh, is, is sex outside of marriage is pornea, uh, they would look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. So we're hearing the same thing from our culture that the Christians of the Church of Corinth would have heard. So what I'm saying in all of this is, this is not a cultural ethic. It's a kingdom ethic. It's about his kingdom. And his kingdom has a different ethic. And Christ calls his followers to a higher ethic than the society that they live within. We are to live against the current in our society. And our current of our society in the area of sexual purity is just kind of like really strong. I mean, you know how when you can cross a river, some of the current is strong and then some is stronger? Well, when you start talking about being pure, being a virgin, uh, saving yourself till marriage, 
living a, a, a holy life and a sexually pure life, people look at you and say, are you kidding me? And, and the current is really strong. Uh, but when people come into a relationship with Jesus, they begin to live their lives in a new sexual purity in the midst of a culture that's sexually bankrupt. You see, this is not some old, outdated ethic. That's not what it is. The Bible has always challenged the cultural customs. And it has been, it was, has been mocked through the ages and is being mocked today. No, the question I want to ask is this. Why should a follower of Jesus Christ live up to this moral standard? Why should we live up to this moral standard that we're going to look at? And we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. It's on page 873, and I would love it if you would turn there and follow along with me. And what Paul is doing, you'll see this in this passage, is Paul seems to be addressing questions, or they have these little sayings. They have these little sayings that they're using, and Paul's taking their sayings, and he's addressing the logic and the theology of those sayings. Because he's not talking to pagans here. He's talking to those people who say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And he's saying, okay, fine. Here's where the ethic meets, where the rubber meets the road. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And he says this. You say, and here's one of their first little sayings, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm not, I, I am allowed to do anything, I must become a slave. I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is true, though. Someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by His power, just as He raised raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the Scriptures say the two are united into one. But a pers- the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price so that you must honor God with your body. So there's three things that we want to just pull from this passage, and they really reflect upon the three sayings that they had. The first saying they had was, I'm allowed to do anything. I'm allowed to do anything. So at Corinth, they were turning the gospel into a license to sin. Here's how they thought. And by the way, when I say this, you're going to say, well, I thought that too. And and you, but you would never want to say this to somebody publicly or out loud, but you probably have. And here's what they were saying. Well, if I'm forgiven, then I can sin because I can always ask God to forgive me. I have an uh, ace in the a hole, right? I can always play the ace card of forgiveness. So I can just go ahead and premeditate sin knowing that God will forgive me if I ask Him for forgiveness. Have you ever done that? Have you ever contemplated or committed a sin thinking, I'll sin now and later on I'll ask for forgiveness? So you premeditated sin. You know, 
this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Paul's response to this kind of thinking was, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says in Romans 6.15, may it never be. And basically what he's saying is if you have that attitude, you don't understand grace. And you don't understand what, what it costs what it costs for our forgiveness. See, one of the major teachings of our modern culture is this, that sex between two consenting adults is perfectly okay. It's a private matter between two people. It's none of anyone's business except ours, and no one will get hurt, at least that's the plan. That's basically the ethic of the world we live in. It has changed radically in the last 50 to 60 years. It is a different world that we live in. Now, If you're a pagan and you're not a Christ follower, you can justify your actions because you only need to be accountable to yourself. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're the bottom line. You're the the ultimate person to determine an ethic. You don't have to answer to God. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you, you march to a different drummer. You have a Lord. You can't just go ahead and do what you want to do. You have to say, God, what is your will for my life? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, everything you do has implications to your relationship with God. Paul answers the Corinthians statement. He says, not all things are are, um, profitable. Sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you have to, to, to put the brakes on. Sometimes you have to say, you know what, I shouldn't do this. Uh, for instance, let me give you, uh, essentially what Paul's saying is that our Christian freedom must be limited by love and lordship. And what I mean by that is that our love for our brothers and sisters limits our Christian freedom. Sometimes we, we choose not to do things that we may have freedom to do because we don't want to offend or hurt another Christian brother or sister. When we uh, know that our actions will hurt a, cr- a Christian brother or sister, we will refrain from that action. Love looks out for others, not just myself. See, that's what it means to be a Christian, a Christian and a Christ follower. It means that, that our actions, sometimes we say no to what we may feel justified doing because we don't want to offend or hurt another brother or sister. Secondly, we need to know who our master is. Who's my master? Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And here's where the wheels come off. When we take good things and we make them ultimate things, they become bad things. And it could be anything. It could be a job. It could be... Uh, raising a family, it could be uh, enjoying, uh, you know, eating, it could be anything, it could be anything. You take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. When I'm mastered by anyone or anything, I have given my life over to that person or thing. And you say, well, how do I know that? How will I know when I've really given my life over to someone or something? Just say, if it was gone tomorrow, would my life fall apart? And if you say, yeah, it would. I don't know how I would live without it. You have basically, you have basically just identified what you've made. It could be a good thing, but you've made it into an ultimate thing. You've made it into an idol, and it's become a bad thing in your life. So that's the first thing Paul basically says. Secondly, Paul addresses their statement, uh, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. So our resurrection has implications. See, we as Christians believe that one day we will be resurrected. And 
So the statement is a strange statement. Let me read it again. Food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. And you say, well, what are they saying there? And essentially what I think they're saying, and I I think this will, let me just word it out here, and maybe that will help you. In other words, I think what they're saying is you use your stomach to eat food. That's its purpose. One day your body will be destroyed, so it doesn't matter what you eat or what you don't eat. And the parallel to that is this. Your body was made for sex, so sex is for the body, and it doesn't matter who you sleep with because one day your body will be destroyed. So whether it's a stomach or sex, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and see, see, what they were doing is they were downplaying the resurrection, and they, they came from a, from a view of the body that said when we die, our body goes to ashes, so it really doesn't matter what you do with your body here on earth. In other words... They were downplaying the importance and significance and the eternality of the body. They were reasoning, what I do with my body has no real concern because it's headed to dust anyway. Now, Paul's argument is this. He is saying, you're not taking into account the Lord's purpose and design, that he has a purpose for our bodies, that they are designed to house the Holy Spirit, that they are designed to be holy, they are designed to bring glory to him, they are designed to serve him, not ourselves. They are designed to live forever. And that's one of the things the Corinthians didn't understand. They didn't realize that their body would be resurrected, and they would have a resurrected physical body to go along with their soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it, the material or immaterial immaterial part of, of man. The Corinthians were not understanding the implications of the resurrection. They were saying what we do with our bodies here and now has no implications for eternity. And Paul was saying, oh, yes, it does. It has incredible implications. I mean, even Jesus, what did he do after his resurrection when he saw Thomas? He said, look at my hands, look at my side. He had real wounds, okay? So there were, so his body, there was a correlation. There was a correlation between his body before and after. And in the same way, the Bible speaks about the correlation between this world and the next world, that it's going to be destroyed, but there's going to be a correlation between the two. There's going to be a new world, and it's going to be similar to this one we're living in. That our bodies are going to be new bodies, but they're going to be similar to the ones we have right now. That what we do with our body has incredible implications for eternity. The resurrection makes a difference. The third thing, let me just throw this out there too. Um, There are three views of of how we deal with the world, uh, with the the end of the world. Um, and, And it's really important that we understand these because I think all world religions can be kind of boiled down to these three views. The first view is what I call materialism, and it basically says you live and you die and you rot. So uh, basically, this view holds that the, the, the body or the physical world, the physical universe, is unimportant. The Greeks held that the body was the, the prison of the soul. Okay? And so when you died, your spirit, soul was set free. All right? So basically, this view, uh, this view basically held that the body was dead and evil and whatever. And so you essentially, uh, materialists would say you live and you die and you're dead. And they would say that if you think you are in love, it's really not love, it's a chemical reaction in your brain. That, uh, you know, all those things are, can be tied to a chemical reaction, something like that. Any, you know, dreams, any of that, it's all your brain. So over here, that, that says the material part is the most important or it's the only one we recognize because they don't recognize the spiritual part. So over here we have 
what we would call the um, spiritual part. And this is really where the Greek view fits in better. So this view says the body's a weight. And, and this is the view that we're addressing here with the Church of Corinth because many of the Christians were saying, well, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's going to die, and then I'm going to be set free, and it doesn't matter. So uh, this is where Buddhism comes in, Hinduism comes in, reincarnation comes in. And it basically says you live and you die, and then you go into the universe, the energy of the universe, whatever you want to call it, reincarnation, uh, transmigration. You know, you either become a plant or a bug or a, a cow or... In reincarnation, you become another person, uh, but your memory is wiped. And by the way, over here in naturalism, you live and you die and you're dead. Your memory, everything is gone. The minute you die, you're dead. You're done, right? Over here, you live and you die and you're recycled. So you go into the energy of the universe, and sometimes you see the guy on PBS, uh, Wayne Dyer, he teaches this view. And you go into the cosmic universe, and you come back out of that well, and you become some other form of life and things along those lines. That's Buddhism. That's Hinduism. But the, the thing is, you, 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 your memory is wiped because you don't remember your life before. So, though, so this is all spiritual, right? This is all spiritual over here. This is all material over here. Christianity is the only view that says you live and you die and then you really live. And you live with a resurrected body and you re- live with your memories and you live forever and you're a body and a spirit combined together and you still have relationships and you remember your wife and your kids. And you, now, let me ask you this. You may be here and you say, I don't know if I believe in any of that stuff. Well, you have to believe in one of those three because those, every world religion boils down to one of those three views. And basically what Paul's addressing here at the Church of Corinth, he's addressing the view that says you live and you die and you recycle that our spirit goes up and recycles. So it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. But Christianity says, oh, yes, it does. Because your body is going to live on forever. You're going to have a new resurrected body. And you're going to remember, Jesus, you know, we remembered. <laughs> and so will we. And, and so, you, so I would say to you, you know the views. You have materialism over here. You live and you die and you're dead. You have spiritualism over here. You live and you die and you recycle. And you have Christianity that says you live and you die and you really live. With a body and a soul and a spirit, just basically you're material and immaterial. You're, you're, you're going to be more alive than you ever were. You're going to have a resurrected body, but you're also going to have memories and thoughts. And you are a spirit being, but you're also a physical being at the same time. Now, which one of those... If you don't believe, which one would you want to believe? I mean, if you were going in to tell a friend, uh, give a friend hope, which one brings hope? I go in and, and say, hey, Bill, good life. You lived and you die, and you're just about done. Sorry. Right? Not a lot of hope there. Or you could say, hey, Bill, you lived and you die, but you're going to recycle. You won't remember me, won't remember your life, won't remember anything. Hopefully you'll do a better job next time, right? I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm just trying to present these are the views. Or you say, you're about to die, but you're about to really become alive, more alive than you've ever been in your whole life. You see, that's the resurrection. And Paul's saying that, that if you don't understand the resurrection, the implication it has for your body, then you're not understanding the, the implications that the resurrection has for your sexual expression and purity and all those other things. So let's talk about the third thing. Sex has a God-ordained purpose. Now, in some of the more literal translations, and 
the one I read doesn't, isn't really that literal. It says, and some of you may have read this, every sin is outside the body. This is verse 18. Every sin is outside the body. So it seems like what they're saying there, this is their saying. Every sin is outside the body. In other words, they're saying uh, that, that, that sin had nothing to do with the body. Sin was a function of motives and intentions. But Paul is quick to point out that sexual immorality is a direct sin against your own body. The act of giving yourself sexually to someone else is one of the most sacred things you can do because God intended the sexual union to be sacred, the sacred giving of yourself within a fully committed loving union between a man and his wife. In other words, it's the crescendo of commitment. It's the ultimate commitment. The way God designed sex to be between a man and a woman was meant to be, this is the ultimate commitment. I've committed my life to you and now I give myself to you. More than I could ever give. Now when this ideal is lost, you're giving away part of yourself that you'll never get back. And the more that you give yourself away to others outside of a fully committed relationship, the more you lose the sacredness of sex and the more you lose a part of your being. So you're giving away a very sacred part of yourself that you can never get back. And uh, it's meant to be given away to one person once to that person. It's meant to give to them. And, And that's why he says the two are united into one. This is a sacred, solemn thing. And yes, it flies totally in the face of our culture today. I get that. But God intended sex to be within a loving relationship of a man and a woman within uh, the marriage vows. And he was insisting that it was radically wrong to give your body to someone whom you will not commit your whole life to. And essentially what Paul is saying is it's ludicrous that we give your body to someone that you won't give your life to. First give your life to them and then give your bodies to one another. That's the way it's supposed to be. The giving of your body is the giving of your life. Today, we've gotten to a place where sex requires no commitment at all. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, he, he likened sex without marriage to tasting food without swallowing and digesting. So let's go to Thanksgiving, shall we? So you're taking a nice piece of white turkey or ham, you know, and you put it in your mouth. And you just don't chew it at all. You just put it in your mouth and then you spit it out. And you say, oh, there's some corn. And you put it in your mouth and you spit it out. And after probably the turkey or the ham, uh, people around you are going, what are you doing? This is not the way you eat a meal. Commit to the meal. Commit to eating it. This is meant to be consumed. This is not... It, this is not meant to be done like that. It's, uh, and, and so Paul is telling us that our body is not a tool for immorality. Now, what I want to do in the little bit of time that we have left is this. I want to give you some practical reasons and tools of how to live a sexually pure life in a society that really doesn't care. I mean, in my grandparents day and my parents day people kind of cared a little bit they don't care anymore my kids that generation they don't care anymore they have no they have no they have basically no 
they're not worried at all about whether they live sexually pure lives at all. And I'm just thinking general population. If, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that just won't work. That's just not, that's just, and I understand it, and, but, but they're more pulled by, the, by the, the, uh, uh, the current of our culture than they are by the Word of God. But when you understand why God intended it to be sacred and special, then you understand why He desires us to live sexually pure lives. It's a really significant thing. So let's get practical. How can we live sexually pure lives? Let me give you three steps. Number one, don't believe the lie of our culture about sex. And I think one of the reasons that many people burn with uncontrollable sexual passion is because at that moment, their hearts truly believe the lie that says this. If you have this great sexual experience, you will finally feel deeply loved and fulfilled. Go ahead and do it. And then you'll feel loved. And now there'll be an emotional moment, but then there'll be a real emptiness. It's 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 a similar thing to taking a drug or getting you know drunk, inebriated. Uh, but sex simply can cannot fill the cosmic void of our souls. Only meeting Jesus face to face will fill the emptiness of our hearts that sin created. And that's the problem. Our world has basically said, if you do this, if you, if you have sex with somebody, you'll feel loved, you'll feel that emptiness will go away. And for a while it will, but it'll create a bigger cave, it'll create a, a bigger hunger, and it will never be filled. Sex, and it's not just sex, it's power, it's prominence, it's wealth, it's beauty, it's accomplishments, it's entertainment, and all these grand promises, all these Things make grand promises, but in the end, they are unable to deliver what our hungering hearts long for, the presence of God. So don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. If you're a young person today, don't believe the lie. Our culture is going to make fun of you, just like it did in the, in the day of... Corinth in the day of Rome. This is not anything new. This, is, this has been going on for hundreds of years. Secondly, recapture the purpose of sex and honor it. I think we've lost God's ordained purpose of sex. We've turned it into a selfish hunger. Let us see sex as something that is treasured and given within a God-honoring relationship as we serve one another. You know, one of the things that I've noticed that our culture is that um, many... Uh, Shows on TV and uh, other movies are, are are very big today on making light of sex, mocking it, making fun of it, uh, trivial, making trivial comments about it or vulgar comments about it. Um, our culture has a disdain for what God intended. Have you ever wondered why so many jokes are sexually focused? I believe that is demonically inspired, and I believe that, 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 that what God has meant to be one of the most sacred things that we could do with another person, Satan has chosen to mock it and to make fun of it and to make it cheap and to make it juvenile and to make it dirty and filthy and ugly and funny. And, and uh, it's, it's just interesting to me how comics and other people and movies have made sex into this, this, this ugly thing. It, it's not 
any more sacred. It's not any more, it's not any more beautiful. Our culture mocks purity, virginity, and selflessness. And they've made something that God intended to be the greatest gift that you could give another person after you've made a commitment. They've made it, they make fun of it, they mock it. And you don't have to go too far to see it. Here's the third thing, and we'll close with this one. It was, I think, Martin Luther that said this. He said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your heads, but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. You can't stop them from flying over your head, but you can't stop them from making a nest in your hair. And his point is, we can't stop. You know, there are some things we can't stop. You may have a sexual thought that occurs and, and many times that's natural and unavoidable. However, we are responsible for what we do with these thoughts. We must not entertain or dwell on them. In, in the end, it's a battle of our minds. What will we do with a thought? What will we do? How far will we go? When will it stop? How will we change the subject? How will we change our mind? How will we do that? And, and essentially, the, the, the battle is, are we going to... Uh, because some, you know, I've, I've talked with people through the years and say, well, I have these thoughts. And I said, the thoughts are not sinful. It's what you do with them. Are you dwelling on them? Are you fantasizing about them? Are you acting them out? In the end, it, it begins in, in the battle of the mind. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, we are given a new ethic. And we're not, not, don't get get me wrong, I'm not saying that immediately today you are going to live up to this ethic. But you'll say, you know, Paul basically said, we read the verse last week, such were some of you. You used to be that way, but you're not anymore. And it was a transition. And even now he's speaking to them and he's saying, you guys have a ways to go here in this area. This is... This, you're, you're in a sin-soaked culture, a sexually explicit culture, and this is the norm in your culture, but it's not the norm for the kingdom of God. And so you have to understand what the kingdom of God's intent is for this gift of sex, and you have to pull yourself out of it, you have to walk against the current, and you've got to understand what God's desire for you is as a follower of Christ. And it's simply this, that Christ's followers raise the bar on sex by living pure lives, and they find their fulfillment, their ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And they don't believe the lie of the world. It says, unless you have sex with as many people as you can, you'll never be happy. So what will it be? How will we live? The Bible says if we're followers of Jesus Christ, that we, are, we live to a new ethic. And that God gives us not only the ability, but the desire and the example Jesus Christ to follow. May we follow his example and live the lives that he intended us to live. And may we keep our vows and may we live lives that are sexually pure and pleasing to God. Will you stand with me and let me lead you in prayer. And so, Father, this isn't something we can do on our own, but it is something that you desire for your sons and daughters. May we raise the bar on sex and purity. May we live lives that are pure.
May we live lives that are honoring to you and honoring to our bodies. And understand that our bodies are a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And may we understand that we were purchased with an incredible price, that we are not our own, that we have been purchased out of Jesus Christ. And may we take that to heart and understand that we belong to you. May we use restraint and may we be thoughtful. May we allow ourselves to dwell on those things that are pure and lovely. And may we not stand and watch and join in with the rest of the world around us that uh, makes light of this wonderful gift that you've given in the proper context. Help us to live pure lives for your glory, Father, and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.